Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us hearts that are receptive to your word and to what we must learn about Jesus and the way that we must uh, take him and trust in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. So today I want to talk about Jesus' radical understanding of the temple of God. Now, Jesus was not easy to understand. That does not mean he was impossible to understand, but it does mean that we need to listen humbly and thoughtfully and reflect on what he said and he did. Uh, For he does make sense, even if it takes a while for that sense to become clear. In John 2, 12-22, John tells one of the most dramatic and memorable things Jesus did, the cleansing of the temple. And you might kind of love Jesus in action here, passionate, disruptive, taking action against the profane world of money and trade, challenging authority and a complacent status quo. You might think, oh Jesus, this is fantastic. Uh, On the other hand, you might be a bit disturbed by Jesus here. You might think, oh gosh, who is this guy with a whip in his hand, pushing and shoving, angry, violent even? Is he some kind of fanatic or extremist? This is not the shy Jesus of the Cana wedding, which we had a couple of weeks ago. He is not here smoothing out problems with a quiet miracle from the sidelines. No, here Jesus steps right into the spotlight and creates problems with a serious disturbance. So today let's reflect on this in three points. Firstly, I think this gives us insight into Jesus' uh, radical relationship with God. It gives us insight into the sign that will confirm Jesus' identity, and it gives us insight into the meaning of the resurrection. And I want to look at those three things from this passage. Firstly, this incident, I think, reveals, at least gives a clue, to Jesus' radical relationship with God. Stop turning my father's house into a market, says Jesus. He doesn't say stop turning the temple of the Lord into a market. He says stop turning my father's house into a market. Jesus sees himself as the faithful son of his heavenly father. And he has a lot to say about him and his father. In the Gospel of John, this is particularly apparent. There are 109 instances of the word father in John. Not all of them refer to God as father, but many of them do. And this is the most references to father, the most occurrences of that word in any book in the New Testament. Matthew comes next with 71. The culminating claim of Jesus about him and his father is in chapter 10, verse 30. I and the father are one. It's me and my father against the world if necessary. If the world can't see that commerce has no place in the temple courts, in my father's house, even if it serves temple activities, this commerce, then I'm not going to ignore it and neither am I going to reason with people about it. I'm going to get all prophetic about it. And even if people can't understand what I do or write me off as a weirdo because of it, I am going to deal with the situation coercively if necessary. 
Now, the verse that the disciples later associate with Jesus over this is from Psalm 69. Psalm 69, we had it at the beginning of the service. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Jesus' level of concern for the absolutely right and proper use of the holy precincts of the temple is, you know, on the dial it's an 11 out of 10. That's how concerned he is about it. Pragmatic concerns that, you know, maybe the temple authorities had in making the decisions about allowing this market uh, into the temple courts is that, look, there's a massive influx of people for Passover, do you know how much the city of Jerusalem grows at this time? Um, there's a need for many, many sacrificial animals to be available. And where can we set all this up at this kind of peak season where the whole city is bursting? These pragmatic concerns, they don't figure with Jesus at all. Get these out of here. Stop making my father's house into a market. Nothing should compromise. The one place on earth, that's what the temple was, the one place on earth where we see God dwells with his people, where they approach him through priesthood and sacrifice to be restored to fellowship with him and to enjoy that fellowship. This is the one place in the world that this happens and nothing should encroach on that holy purpose. It is this zeal for the temple. And so in this zeal for the temple, Jesus... uh, resembles David, his ancestor, the the son of God, the Christ, the king of Israel of old. David was not allowed to build the temple. God said, no, you're a man of blood. Um, But David made sure absolutely everything was all piled up right there, ready to go. The plans, the materials, the instructions. He didn't build it, but he pretty much did everything else. 1 Chronicles 29, with all my resources, says David, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colours, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver, For the temple of my God. Over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold. Gold of Ophir. And 7,000 talents of refined silver. For the overlaying of the walls of the buildings. For the gold work and the silver work. And for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now says David who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today. Here is a man with a zeal for the Lord's house. And the son of God, the Christ, God's king is zealous for the temple. And so Jesus, great David's greatest son, is God's true son on this measure too. He has this core concern to honour his father and that the temple be that place where his father is honoured. Secondly, uh, this incident, I think, reveals the sign that will confirm Jesus' identity as this true son as the one who has the right to make these calls about the temple. Unsurprisingly, Jesus is challenged over his actions. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? How can you come in here and behave like this? How can you disrupt things in this place, in this way? 
Jesus names the sign. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now the people want some evidence of prophetic authority, a word from the Lord perhaps, some revelation of hidden knowledge, some miracle even perhaps, like Elijah or Elisha did. And Jesus doesn't refuse to provide a sign. However, he asks a lot of the people who want a sign. Destroy this temple and then I will raise it up again. Now, even if that were a practical plan, a possible plan to destroy the temple that took 46 years to build, it seems like a very big risky move for the people to do this in order to, to receive this sign from Jesus. And so they replied, bemused, confused, even scornful perhaps. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? It seems like Jesus won't then be showing any sign. However, not so fast. Jesus does show a sign to prove his authority. But his words need to be taken in a different sense. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. The narrator comments, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. In John 1, 14, we read the word... The word who was with God and the word who was God was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. And you could translate that and tabernacled among us. And the tabernacle was a a great big tent and the, the temple took the form of a tabernacle for centuries of Jewish life. When John says the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, he's saying dwelt as in a temple amongst us. So this verse foreshadows what Jesus means when he says, destroy this temple and refers to his own body. Jesus' flesh was the tabernacle of the divine word, the temple of the divine word, a a dwelling place of God in our midst. And when Jesus' enemies in Jerusalem had him crucified some years later, they did destroy this temple. The body in which God dwelt among us was cut down. And in the resurrection, Jesus did raise up that temple again, giving the sign that proved his identity as the true son and having the authority to act as he did. Not that this was understood at the time, Jesus was, as John's Gospel will show us again and again, an enigma, a puzzle and a mystery, even to his disciples. But in verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken because they saw how it all fit together. They saw that it did make sense. They saw that Jesus knew the end from the beginning. Even in his strangeness, as his life unfolded before his contemporaries, Jesus won faith. He won allegiance. He won loyalty from the people who heard and saw him. Verse 23, while he was at, in Jerusalem at the Passover, that's all many people saw. Science was performing and believed in his name. 
But Jesus also knew they don't get it, really. They don't get it yet. And so Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knew that human spiritual vision and natural capacity for it is is low. We are dull. And Jesus knew his, his life and ministry would only come into focus. It would only make sense after the resurrection. And what he said beforehand only makes its proper sense in the light of that coming resurrection. But once we understand that Jesus did rise from the dead, we can get some insight into the meaning of the resurrection from what he says here in this passage. For this passage is distinctive, perhaps unique, in that it speaks about the resurrection as the raising up of a destroyed temple. Now, the temple represents the goal of creation, you might say. For that God would dwell with his people, that they would be his people and he would be their God. This is the purpose for which God made the world. He made it that we might know him, that he might be ours and we might be his. And the temple was the place where that was brought to its fulfilment. And so the peace and fellowship that reigns in the temple, the divine glory that fills the temple, the fact that everything there in the temple is holy, it's fit to serve God, it's full of joyful praise for God and his goodness, that is where God is taking the world to that state, the state that you find in the temple when it is operating as it should. And that a human body, human flesh, might be God's temple, That's quite a thought, that a human being might be a place in which peace with God and fellowship with God reigns, that a human body might be a place filled with the glory of God, whose every fibre and every motion is holy, serves the Lord with joy. This is quite a thought, that this could be. And Jesus was such a human being in whom God made a divine dwelling place in human nature, made a temple of a human body. And even when human sin and blindness and hostility destroyed that temple, cut it down, he raised it up again. Because God will not be thwarted. He will establish his temple in our world, in our midst. He will dwell with his people. He will raise up their ruined humanity. And ultimately, his temple is not a building of any kind. Neither is his temple Jesus' body alone. Ultimately, his temple, his dwelling place, is Jesus and his people. 1 Peter 2 uses this image of those who come to Jesus as being built into a temple. As you come to him, to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, 
through Jesus Christ. The risen Jesus is the living stone, the beginning and cornerstone of a new temple, a radically different kind of temple, built not of brick or stone, but of other living stones, other human beings who have come to Jesus and become then dwelling places of God by his spirit. This is an awesome vision of what God is doing with us, with humanity. In his church, even today, but which he will bring to its proper fruition at the right time. But if this temple that God is building in us, amongst us, with us, if this becomes a marketplace, if some activity that should not be here encroaches upon it, well, expect Jesus with his whip of cords to kind of shoo that out That's what Jesus will do for his temple. If anything intrudes, he will say, stop. This is my father's house. This is the place God dwells. This is to be for him. It's to be holy. It's to be full of his peace and fellowship. It's not to be full of things that do not belong here. He will drive them out. And if this temple that Jesus is building is torn down by enemies... Expect Jesus to raise it up again. For he's not going to be thwarted. It's not going to fail. He will build his temple. And for this we praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your determination to dwell amongst us and the way that was expressed in the temple in Jerusalem which Jesus cleansed that it might fulfil its purpose of testifying to the fact that we can have peace and fellowship with you, we can draw near to you we can behold your glory thank you for your dwelling amongst us in the person of Jesus Christ, that he made a human body, his Uh, your dwelling place. And we praise you, Lord, that as we come to him, the living stone, we, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So, Lord, keep this house in order in our lives and in our fellowship and protect us. And even if we are opposed, hurt, torn down, raise us up again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.